Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he constantly used short stories or parables to communicate spiritual truths to the crowds that gathered to hear him. By telling parables, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to Jesus' disciples, but they would be hidden from his opponents. Listen to this talk from the parable series as we dive into some of Jesus' most memorable stories. Back in my senior year of college, I had this friend named Katie, and Katie's family lived out in Preston County, and they had a river that went right along their backyard, and Katie invited a group of us to come out to her river, uh, come out to her parents' house, and have kind of a real-life lazy river experience, ending the day with dinner at her family's house, and then heading back to Morgantown. And to us, that sounded like a pretty good day for some college students. Um, Things did not go exactly as planned, though. Uh, Katie's dad, he did. He dropped us off at a bridge a few miles upstream. Uh, we threw all of our phones in there. We threw our shoes in there. We're like, we're going to be floating in the river. We don't need any of that. So he dropped us off a few miles upstream. And immediately when I got in this so-called river, uh, I noticed it was about a foot deep. And there were some spots that were like two or three feet deep, but like not deep enough for us to float by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, our one friend, Ron, had a kayak. And rather than like paddling the kayak, he was just pushing off the rocks as he got stuck every single stride. And so we just decided at one point, we were like, this isn't working. We're just hitting the rocks as we try and float we're just gonna walk the creek barefoot. Like this is the best case scenario. And, and we were disappointed, but we were like, let's try and make the best of a bad situation. Um, but we started to get pretty miserable. It was not comfortable. We were not having fun. It was hot. The trip was taking way longer than anticipated. And, and none of us had a watch because you know we didn't really think ahead at all. And so we didn't have a watch, didn't have a phone, no way to tell time. We could tell like the sun is starting to get low probably getting close to dinner time, and we don't know if we're anywhere close to back yet. And so myself and, and one other friend uh, thought the best course of action at this point would be to get out of the creek on the side Katie's house was, and to go up this hill, the bank of the creek, and then to walk, find a road, and head back to Katie's house. Surely we'll find a road we recognize, we'll get there. Um, it'll be great. However, Katie disagreed. Katie's like, I know this river, like we've been, I know it hasn't been a fun day or whatever, but like we're almost to my parents' house, I guarantee it, we'll be there soon, that's the safest, best option. And so naturally, since it was Katie who most uh, knew the area the best, we outvoted her and decided against her and got out of the river. Um, and we went onto the shore, and not only that, but our friend Ron in the kayak, we're like, no, nobody's carrying the kayak, so good luck, buddy. And we just left him behind in the river, which was a terrible decision looking back on. There's a lot of hindsight in this story. You know, hindsight's always 20-20, but leave Ron, we walk up shore, uh, we climb up this hill, and then we realize we're trespassing on someone's property. And we're like, this is not a good situation. Like, we're barefoot, we have inner tubes, this, is, this looks weird, we need to get off their property before they come out, choose to exercise their Second Amendment rights with us in view. And so we do that. We just kind of run off of their property, which again, looking back, probably should have just walked. Running was definitely more suspicious than just walking off their property. We do eventually get off, gravel road, barefoot, kind of brambles on the side. It's like not nowhere easy to walk. And we're just walking. It's getting darker. And we just have to admit at one point, like, hey, we're lost. Like, we, we don't know where we are. Katie didn't recognize it, and it's not her fault at all. But, like, nobody recognized where we were at. And 
we hadn't seen a house in like a long time since the only house that we trespassed on. And, and we're just walking, we're like, we gotta just keep going, gotta keep going. And eventually we come up upon a house and thankfully uh, the family was outside and they were like, what are you people doing? And we explained our situation and they were kind enough to take us back to Katie's house and, uh, you know, they, they took us back to Katie's house. They knew her road. And most of us hopped in the back of uh, the pickup. But one of our friends, Stephanie, got on the back of a four-wheeler driven by their eight-year-old son, which was like the most West Virginia thing possible. It was so funny. We loved it. And, and we did get back, thankfully, safe and sound. It was dark by the time we get back. We had some cold dinner uh, and a really good story instead of a relaxing day. Um, and funny side note, Ron actually made it back to the house in about five minutes from the creek where it took us a couple hours to get back walking out. So, you know, my bad on that one. But, you know, we were lost. And then we were found. And when we were found, we experienced great joy because of that. Have you ever been lost? Maybe in a car trip? I mean, it doesn't happen as much now with GPS, but back in the day, right? Paper map, Atlas, MapQuest, you take one wrong turn, you're in Virginia instead of Pennsylvania, don't know where you're going. You're in a hike in Cooper's Rock, walking down Rattlesnake Trail, and all of a sudden there's no more trail markers around. You're like, Wait, how did I get where I'm at? Have you ever been so lost you got desperate enough to do the unthinkable and, and ask for directions? I mean, that's crazy, right? You know it's bad if you're asking for directions, right? I mean, how much, how much stress could be avoided if we just stopped and asked for directions at the first sign of trouble? I never do that, and I have a terrible sense of direction, as you can tell by the story I shared, right? But in all seriousness, being lost, it, it's anxiety-inducing, right? There's so much uncertainty. You don't even know what you don't know when you're lost. But there's so much joy in being found, both for the people who are found and also those who are looking for them when they find them. And this morning, we're continuing our series on the parables of Jesus, looking at a group of parables Jesus told kind of as a package deal. And they're often read and talked about separately, but when we look at them kind of together, we can see how they work in tandem to bring to life a truth about God. And that truth about God is our takeaway this morning. It's that the heart of God is to seek and save the lost. The heart of God is to seek and save the lost. And the cord that ties all three of these parables together is that there's something that's lost, the thing is found, and then it results in great joy. So let's turn to Luke chapter one, or chapter 15, verse one, and start reading this account. It says, all of the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And it's so interesting that over and over again, if you read the gospels in, in Jesus's life, tax collectors and sinners were, were among the people who drew near to him to listen to him all the time, over and over again. And, and the tax collectors and sinners were among the worst of the worst in their society. Right, tax collectors were seen as traitors. They worked for Rome and they were the ones who collected the taxes from their Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and not only that, but it was relatively commonplace for them to not just take the tax they were supposed to, but to take a little extra and pocket it for themselves. And so they were helping the occupying empire and they were kind of taking advantage of their own people for their own gain. They were not, they didn't have a lot of fans from among their Jewish brothers and sisters. And then sinners, these were people who didn't live up to the standards of the law set before them, right? They would have kind of lived wildly, lived, kind of had indulged in riotous living. They were unclean. They were seen as unworthy. They were not right with God. You didn't want to associate with sinners and have their kind of icky kind of rub off on you. Both of these groups were outcasts. And yet both of these groups drew near to Jesus. And Jesus spent a lot of time with them. Let's keep reading in verse two. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. 
This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so now we're introduced right away to a second group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes. And these were the religious elite in their day. They were the ones who interpreted, who kept, who enforced the law of God. And they were highly legalistic in regard to the law. And they prided themselves on keeping every word, every dot and tittle of their interpretation of God's law. And they looked down on anyone and everyone who couldn't, ma who couldn't match it, who couldn't do that. They looked down on the tax collectors and sinners. They would see them as not worthy and, and they wouldn't associate with them because they didn't want their sinfulness to rub off on them. And sharing a meal with someone indicates acceptance. And so by eating with the sinners and with the tax collectors, Jesus is communicating that he accepts them. And so naturally when Jesus, who's claiming to be a man of God and claiming even to be the son of God, these religious elite look at him and they're like, hey, what is going on? I don't understand it. Why are you welcoming and dining with these outcasts? They become indignant with him. They're frustrated and confused and mad. This isn't how they view God. This isn't who Jesus should be hanging out with. And so let's see how Jesus responds in verse three. He responds with these three parables. It says, so he told them a parable, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And so in this story, we notice right away, there are three groups, three characters. There's the shepherd, the 99 sheep, and the one lost sheep. And the shepherd represents God. And the 99 sheep represent those who kind of, uh, who, who would be the so-called good Jewish people, right? The people Jesus should be hanging out with. And then the one lost sheep are kind of the not so good Jewish people, the people Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with, the tax collectors and sinners, the lost, the ones that Jesus actually came for. And upon reading this, I, I feel like it seems kind of reckless what the shepherd does. I mean, you've got 99 good sheep over here and he leaves them for one. Are the 99 not as important as the one? I mean, in, in some sense, they're 99 times more valuable than the one sheep. Why would he leave what's 99 times more valuable to go find the one? And, and the answer, you know, are, they not, is it, are the 99 not as important as the one? Of course they are. And I think it's because they're that important that he goes after them. And we, we learn from this parable that God cares so greatly about every single lost sheep, lost sinner, that he not only leaves the 99 to search for them, he rejoices greatly when they're found. And this reminds me of a time last month when we were at our friend uh, Danielle and Hammer's house and we were hanging out. They invited us over to come swim in their pool and barbecue and the whole nine. And we had a great time, all their kids, our kids, some other of their friends, and we're hanging out. And eventually toward the end of the night, it's our family and their family kind of in the living room. We just finished up eating. We're just chilling. Everything's cool. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, where's Aria? Aria's our two-year-old, our middle child. And I'm like, she, I, she's not here, right? And if you're a parent, you know that feeling, right? You, you've, you've lost a kid before. Just admit it. We've all done it at some point. And, and in the, you know, the pit in your stomach, the unthinkable is the only thing you can think of, right? What's the worst case scenario? She's down, there's a pool down there. She, there's a road right there. What, what happened? And so immediately I leave the living room, right? Aria, Aria, where are I'm calling for her throughout the house. And, and I, at this moment, I'm not considering Kinsley and Oliver, right? My other kids. I'm only considering Aria. I'm yelling for her. I'm looking for her throughout the house. She's not responding. 
Does, it, does this mean I, I love Kinsley and Aria less? No, it, it shows that I care about all of them so much so that if any one of them were in danger, if any one of them were lost, I'm gonna walk away from the two that I know are safe to go find the one that's lost because I wanna bring her back into my arms and know she's safe, right? And thankfully, she was safe. She wandered by herself upstairs to their playroom and just found some of uh, their daughter's dolls and was just playing, having a great time, not a care in the world, not willing to answer any of my wild, crazy yelling. Um, but thankfully found her and it, back in my arms, the relief, right? And the joy that you have when you have your children back with you when they were lost. Dr. Warren Wearsby says this about the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep. He says, by leaving the 99 sheep, the shepherd was not saying they were unimportant to him. They were safe, but the lost sheep was in danger. The fact that the shepherd would go after one sheep is proof that each animal was dear to him. Jesus was not suggesting that the scribes and Pharisees were not in need of salvation, for they certainly were. We must not make every part of the parable mean something. Otherwise, we'll turn it into an allegory and distort the message. And Dr. Wiersbe ends that with kind of a good reminder that parables are typically communicating one main point. And if we get too caught up in the weeds and the details and think there's other things that Jesus is saying, we're gonna miss the main point and probably think something incorrectly. So we need to recognize all the details are supporting and pointing toward the main point. And in this parable, Jesus is trying to communicate that God cares for all those who are lost. He cares for all of his sheep. And he rejoices greatly when those that are lost are found. I mean, I love the picture of joy, right? The shepherd is overflowing with joy. He can't contain it. He can't keep it to himself. He calls his friends, bro, you got to know I found my lost sheep. We can celebrate. That joy spills out and he shares it with others. And heaven is more joyful each time someone who is lost in their sin comes to the foot of Christ and repents because of his grace. Heaven is more joyful at one lost sinner coming back to him. Jesus tells the second parable starting in verse eight. He says, or what woman who has 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Again, right, the theme is carrying through. We see something's lost. It's a silver coin or a drachma. It'd be a day's wage. And then it's found. And then it's finding results in immense joy. And in the story, we again see three groups. We have the woman who represents God. We have the, the nine coins who would have represented the good Jewish people, the people Jesus should have been hanging out or maybe even people who thought they were good on their own. And then we have the one lost coin representing the lost, the sinners, the tax collectors, etc. And you'll notice that, that the woman goes through great effort to find the coin. That's kind of one of the differences between the first story and the second. The effort is, is described, right? Houses at this point in time didn't really have windows. So she would have had to light a lamp in order to look for the coin and that would have cost a valuable resource of oil. So she's spending kind of financially to be able to look for this coin. And there also would have been kind of a dirt earth floor. So she would have to sweep the whole house. Who knows where it could be? It could be anywhere. She's got to sweep through the whole thing to try and find it. There's great effort on her part. And of course, right, a day's wage is not something you would want to lose. But Dr. Wearsby gives us some insight as to why the coin is so valuable and why the effort is so great because of the value. He says this, that when a Jewish girl married, 
she began to wear a headband of 10 silver coins to signify that she was now a wife. It was the Jewish version of our modern wedding ring, and it would be considered a calamity for her to lose one of those coins. Anybody lost a wedding ring? That's a whole lot of stress you don't want to deal with, right? Palestinian houses were dark, so she had to light a lamp and search until she found the lost coin, and we can imagine her joy at finding it. We must not press parabolic images too far. Again, Wiersbe's giving us this reminder, don't kind of go digging in the mud, but he says this time it's worth noting that the coin would have the, on it the image of the ruler. The lost sinner bears the image of God, even though that image has been marred by sin. When a lost sinner is found, God begins to restore that divine image through the power of the spirit. And one day the believer will be like Jesus Christ. When I read this parable, I think about what my house looks like when we're looking for our remote, right? Couch cushions everywhere, blankets, toys, whole place getting upturned. My wife, myself, my kids were all blaming each other. You were watching the TV, but you turned the volume and you got to know where it is, right? Y'all, it's just chaos ensues. Anybody else relate to that, right? And then it's just in the most obvious place possible. It's just like on the counter or on the mantle or something, right? And, and the stress from that, that's not a fun situation. Anxiety's high, it's not a good time. And the relief and the joy when you finally find it. And, and, and I just think about this woman and how much more valuable what she lost was. And when she found it, how much greater her joy must have been. And I think about how much more valuable we are to God than the coin is to the woman. And how much joy God finds in us when we are found in him. It's interesting that Jesus says that, that there was joy um, in the presence of, not on the part of. So not on the part of the angels, but in the presence of the angels. And I don't think Jesus is saying that the angels didn't have joy at this notion that when a, when a sinner is found, but he is uh, making the point and the, the emphasis is on the level to which God rejoices when that which is lost is found. See, that's what Jesus is trying to communicate, that God is, his joy is so much so that he can't contain it. It spills out over into the rest of heaven and all the angels experience God's joy when a lost, someone who is lost is found. And that's kind of, kind of getting at the point of this parable that John A. Martin kind of helps uh, note, note that for us. He says, the point would have been clear to Jesus's listeners. The sinners with whom he was associating were extremely valuable to God. This would have been a scandalous claim to assert in refuting their indignation at Jesus's hanging out with sinners. Hey, I hang out with them because God cares about them deeply because they are valuable to him, even if they're not valuable to you. We're gonna look at the third and, and the most familiar parable among the three that Jesus shared starting in verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. And, and for the third time in three parables, we see three groups, right? Right off the bat, we've got the father, the older son and the younger son. And so we have the father representing God in the parable and the older son is going to represent the, the self-righteous or the, the good, so-called good Jewish people. And then the younger son is going to represent the lost sinners. We continue in verse 12 when it says, the younger one of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So in essence, we have this younger son looking his dad right in the face and saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I'd much rather have your stuff than have you around. So please give it to me now. Probably didn't say please, 
right? But the father probably didn't have all of that kind of money, liquid gold just sitting, hanging around. He probably had to sell some of his property or livestock or, or some of his possessions in order to fulfill his son's request. And the insane thing is, is that he does it. He fulfills that request. And so the younger son is given his inheritance early and then he leaves with it and he squanders it all in foolish living. Let's continue in verse 14. It says, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And, and this is as rock bottom as it gets for a Jewish man, right? He's probably ruined his relationship with his family and that's probably you know, a non-negotiable, never happening again. He's wasted everything he had living foolishly. And he's so desperate that he began working with pigs, which were the lowest of low animals and, and would have made him ceremonially unclean and not right with God. And he's down so bad that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating and the people won't give him that. He's in a terrible situation. And, but what I want you to notice about what happens next is that it's not just his despair that causes him to come to his senses, but it's the goodness of the father as well. See, the son is at the hands of much worse masters than his father, people who are described as giving him nothing. And in the midst of his misery, he remembers his father's mercy. Verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. I love that it says that he came to his senses, right? Because he, he's making a whole lot more sense now than before when he kind of lived foolishly and, and, and did a terrible thing with his father and, and so on and so forth. He's making a lot of sense now. Okay, I know, what, I know what to do. My dad's a great master. He takes care of his servants. His servants have more than enough. And yet here I am wasting away. If I just turn back and ask him, He's gonna let me be one of his hired workers. And he, he has a, a kind of serious moment where he says, I don't deserve to be a son anymore. I've given that right up. I'm too far gone. I'm too dirty. I'm too messy. That status can never be changed again. I can never become the son that I once was. If only he'll make me one of his hired servants. And I'm sure because of his mercy, he will, but that's not exactly what happens. Let's see in verse 20 what takes place. It says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father interrupts his apology and he told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And at this point in his ministry, Jesus had already spoken on multiple occasions of the kingdom of heaven as a banquet or as a feast. And so we looked at actually one of those parables earlier in our series, and, and Jesus is making it clear that the, in this parable, the younger son is representing a lost sinner who is coming into the kingdom of God. And it amazes me that on the day the son returns, the father's just standing there waiting. 
as he had done every single day since his son left, waiting for him to return. And, and not only does he just wait, but he runs to greet him. And Dr. Wearsby lets us know kind of uh, some great insight onto why this is so important that he ran to him. It says, in the East, old men did not run. Yet the father ran to meet his son, why? One obvious reason was his love for him and his desire to show that love, but there's something else involved. This wayward son had brought disgrace to his family and village, and according to Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, he should have been stoned to death. If the neighbors had started to stone him, they would have hit the father who was embracing him. What a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is the love that the father has for the lost. This is the love that the father has for all of us here in this room. In the same way that the father went to the lost son, God came down to heaven in his son, Jesus. In the same way that the father poured out his mercy and grace on the lost son, God pours out his mercy and grace on us through the cross of Christ. In the same way that the lost son doesn't deserve to have his sonship back, to be considered a son, to be given the best robe and sandals and ring. In the same way, God adopts all who call on the name of Jesus to be saved as sons and daughters and invites us to enjoy the wedding feast that is life with him. This is who God is. And this is what Jesus is trying to make clear to these Pharisees. They're missing the picture. They don't clearly understand who God is. And it's impacting the way that they're treating the people that God has created. And if they don't understand it yet at this point and read those through these three parables, they're definitely gonna understand it now because Jesus gets really blunt as he wraps up the parable starting in verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him. Your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So this story doesn't end like the other, the first two parables, right? There is a son who's lost. And he is found and there is rejoicing, but it's not on all parties. The older brother is resentful. He feels slighted. He refuses to celebrate his younger brother, the one who was once lost and is now found. And, and in the older brother, Jesus is making a nearly direct representation of these religious leaders. They're standing there indignant that Jesus would so dare as to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, people that they saw not fit to be amongst the religious people. How could Jesus do such a scandalous thing as accept those? When they're the ones, the Pharisees and scribes, they're the ones that deserve to be accepted, accepted. They deserve to be dining with Jesus. They're the ones who follow all the rules. They're the ones who show up to church every week and the ones who serve and the ones who do all the right things. They're the ones who've earned it and are righteous. So they thought. Pharisees and scribes are just as lost, if not more lost than the tax collectors and sinners because they, they don't even know it. They refuse to see it. See, the older brother refuses to enter into the feast with the father and the younger son. He's now the son 
that is lost. He's on the outside. He's not in there intimately celebrating with his father and with his brother. And this reminds me of what Paul says when he quotes Isaiah saying that all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. We have all turned away from God in some form or fashion. We are all lost. We've all kind of said, I'm gonna do things my way. And we've walked down that path. And some of us have reached the end of that path. And we have felt like the younger son in misery, desperate, empty, longing to fill our hearts with something that can't do it with these pods that the pigs ate. And we've turned around and we've come to our senses. Some of us maybe are on that path right now, walking out that way, living life in our own way. And and I can only tell you the, the only thing that is waiting for you at the end of that is emptiness and brokenness. The only place that you'll find the fulfillment you're looking for is back in the home with the father. And the thing that I love is that we see the father not only go out to the younger son, but he goes out to the older brother as well. He leaves the feast to go out to the older brother to beg and to plead, to bring him in, to help him see that his heart is for the lost. And that's what God's heart is. It's to seek and save the lost. That's what he does no matter who it is. Whether it's someone who knows they're lost and someone we think is lost, or whether it's ourselves, whether it's the righteous, whether it's those who don't know they're lost yet. These are three parables about things that are lost and then they're found and there's someone who's willing and able to find them. And these stories reveal the true nature of God, that he is one who seeks and saves the lost. And and when Jesus told these parables, this last portion served as a direct rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes. And it can serve the same purpose for us today. The late pastor and professor Harvey Kahn, he made the observation that the longer you're in church, the more you can resemble the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. See, once we're found ourselves, once we've placed our faith in Christ, we have the privilege of adopting the same attitude as Jesus and joining the search party that is the church, seeking out those who are lost and bringing the gospel to them. If the heart of God is to seek and save the lost, then the church should be reflecting that heart by doing the very same thing. And John Wesley even goes as far to say that the church has nothing to do but save souls. Not that we save souls ourselves, but we bring the gospel, which is where people can be saved through faith in Christ. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. See, the Son of Man came not to condemn this world, but so that the world may be saved through him. This is his heart. This is who our God is. This is who we're called to be, ambassadors of Christ, a people joined together on a mission, bringing the good news to anyone and everyone who will listen. That's what the church is supposed to be, a missional community. But if we're not careful, we can forget who our God is and we can miss the point. We can turn into bouncers rather than ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And so for those of us who have been found, who have placed our faith in Christ, we gotta ask ourselves, what ways am I like the older brother? Are there groups of people that I look down upon like the Pharisees and scribes because of the way that they act, because of the way that they behave, because of who they vote or don't vote for, because of the things they wear, the things they do, the things they say? I'm sure we all have some group like that that probably comes to mind that's hard for us to love. A, a group of people that maybe if you saw some holier religious leaders or some pastors hanging out with them, you'd be like, Wait, why, why are they hanging out with those people? They should be hanging out with, with, with me. If that's the case, then, then we need to come together and we need to ask God to help us see those people for what they are, image bearers of the most high. People who God desperately wants to bring home. 
and ask God to help us remember the incredible lengths that he went through to not only make their journey home possible, but our journey home as well.